Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Before I bring you today's guest, I'm going to do something pretty rare for this podcast, which is make a time-sensitive announcement. But it's a big one. Because on January 30th, 2020, I'm launching the Kickstarter campaign for my next book, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? This is your chance to pre-order the book and get some really great discounts, while also helping me fund my independent publishing costs, like hiring multiple editors and a professional graphic designer. The Kickstarter will only last for three weeks. It ends noon Pacific time on February 20th, and my goal is to raise $10,000. If you'd like to contribute and pre-order, you can go to blakebowles.com slash Y. That's the letter Y. And it'll take you to the Kickstarter campaign. And if you're listening after February 20th, 2020, you can still go to blakebowles.com slash Y, and it will redirect you to where you can purchase the book. And if you'd like to get more updates like this about my projects and work, I invite you to join my email newsletter. Just go to blakebowles.com and scroll to the bottom. Without further ado, now I bring you Matthew. My guest today is Matthew Joya, a staff member at the Hudson Valley Sudbury School. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much, Blake. It's good to be here. I'm excited to have you on here. I've read your blog posts on the Hudson Valley Sudbury School website for a long time. They're incredibly well-written and thought-provoking. And then we got to meet for the first time a few years ago when I came to visit Hudson Valley on my speaking tour. I, I think I was speaking for the, the, the Travel Corporation, helping them plan a, some sort of trip. Did, did that trip happen? Uh, yes, it did. I think that was, I think that was just last year, Blake, uh, because they went to, they went to Latvia, or maybe you, I don't know, maybe you came the year before, but they they were planning the trip to Latvia. Latvia sounds right. Um, and they went last year, and the the trip was a success, and they had a wonderful time. And um, then they're also going to Spain um, shortly. I think this month. Wow! Awesome. Uh, we also got to spend time together in summer 2019 at the Young Professionals and Self-Directed Education Retreat, and, and that was great. And, and you had lots of seemingly productive conversations with people in the Agile Learning Center world and the Liberated Learners world, too. There, there weren't many other Sudbury uh, representatives at that small gathering. No, I think, it was, I think it was basically just me, wasn't it? I believe so. Do you find yourself representing the world of, of Sudbury model education often nowadays? Uh, n- no. I mean, you, you know, usually when Sudbury seems to be kind of an insular uh, community, um, partly because everyone who is a staff at a school is so, you know, over their heads in work trying to run the school and keep the doors open and, and improve it at the same time. And it's just we're too busy to get out and represent the school, but it seems like whenever anyone does, like I know Jim Reitmolder went to the Aero conference this past summer and he, he, I think he told me he was the only Sudbury person there. Um, So it's, I think it's not uncommon for, you know, there to be just one person who's able to make it to a conference like that. And Jim Reitmolder is a longtime staff member at the circle school in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That's right. Which is very close to a Sudbury school. And before we, we move on to your story, 
Matthew, can you just briefly tell people, like, what does the phrase Sudbury School even mean nowadays? How much water does that hold? Um, that's a good question, Blake, and uh, I'm a little I'm a little hesitant to to attempt an answer um, because it has been. It has been hotly debated within the Sudbury community, and um, the the founders of Sudbury Valley School um, have always been very protective of, um, or maybe I should say defensive of, a- attempting to articulate any kind of precise definition um, of the, the term um, for a variety of reasons. Um, basically, though, the way, the way I see it, and... Um, I think this would hold true for all the Sudbury schools I'm aware of is that a Sudbury school um, is a place, a school that functions as a, uh, as a direct democracy, including the students and the staff. And that also, sorry, that that's one, that's one part. And the other part is uh, the Sudbury school is a place that uh, jealously protects self-determination for its students. That's, a fascinating and very open definition of a Sudbury school. And and it sounds like that could also be any democratic free school uh, out there. Is that accurate? I don't, you know, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know of any democratic free schools that apart from Sudbury schools, I know of, about free schools. Like there's one nearby here, the Albany free school. I've never visited, um, but I know, you know, I know about how they operate, um, and I've spoken to people associated with the school. I know about the Brooklyn Free School, um, and <clears throat> there are there neither of those schools. My understanding is that neither of those schools do operate as direct democracies, although students are have a lot of access to decision making in those schools. I think that in terms of the governance, they would. Uh, they would be a little bit different. And the last the last thing uh, which makes a school a Sudbury school, uh, which is is that the school itself identifies as such. Okay. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Um, I mean, it's, so- it's, it's been an important part, I think, of the criteria for the Sudbury Valley School itself in, in you know, recognizing and communicating with other schools. So that they... They trust schools um, to identify that way and that, you know, they, if schools want to do that, they are, you know, in a certain way, I think, paying homage to Sudbury Valley School and um, perhaps, you know, even asking for to have some kind of relationship with them. But there is no official relationship. There's not, it's not, certainly not a franchise, but That's there's correct. no direct connections between schools that might call themselves Sudbury Schools or Sudbury Model or Inspired and the original Sudbury Valley School. That's correct. Okay, good. Let's go back to earlier in your life, Matthew, because we're going to talk about the ideals versus the realities of uh, Sudbury education, Sudbury schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, for a little context, tell us how you arrived at at your discovery of Sudbury schools in the first place. Sure. So in in 2010, um, I... I decided to go on this adventure um, to Mississippi uh, to teach middle school there, and I went via a program called the Mississippi Teacher Corps, which is basically analogous to Teach for America. Um, 
and I wanted to go to the southeast because I had I had traveled around most of the country um, and I lived in been living in Colorado and New Mexico for several years in each state and I uh, just I wanted to, to to go to a different part of the state and in particular you know it was appealing to me to go to the the poorest state or one of one of the poorest state in the state which was performing the worst in terms of of education and, and other things as well so um, so I chose Mississippi and also a state with a very you know rich um, history and you know obviously much of it is is brutal and terrible um, but also um, a lot of, of beautiful culture um, has been created in, uh, in Mississippi and elsewhere in the south um, so I went to Mississippi with that that program um, and basically just got involved in this nightmare, um, which was teaching uh, middle school in uh, this sort of semi-rural um, area of Mississippi. Um, the school that I went to was um, middle school with about 500 students. I was teaching sixth grade reading. Um, I didn't have proper training, you know, as with Teach for America, there's there was kind of a crash course in like basically in classroom management um, being, you know, the first sort of hurdle to success. And we taught summer school and then we were just thrown into the classroom. My first classroom, uh, Blake, was the was formerly the locker room for the uh, football team. So it was like, you know, I arrived at this school and they put me in this classroom that was like this bizarre sort of shape for a classroom, you know, like the benches and the lockers had been cleared out, but it was very bizarre. Yeah. And, and, and it didn't have, and it only had windows like high up on the walls because, you know, people would be changing in there. Um, and it also didn't have air conditioning because I, you know, I guess people wouldn't be spending very much time inside the locker room. Um, so and then, and also the door opened onto the parking lot. Um, and, um, you know, that kind of set the tone for my school year. It was it was really hot. I didn't know what I was doing. And the students didn't want to be there. And they were really, um, had really sort of trained up in this sort of antagonistic relationship between themselves and, you know, teachers or other authorities at the school. Um, so... The first year was really challenging for me. I would, you know, go there, would work all day. I taught seven periods, you know, seven to three. um, And um, would, by the end of the day, I would be dripping with sweat um, and exhausted, having accomplished nothing. And usually, you know, students would make fun of me on the way out the door. It's, you know, because of the state I was in. Uh, I remember one, you know, one day in the first, that first fall as a student was, was leaving and um, <clears throat> I was feeling, you know, terrible having been defeated all day um, and used all my energy. And I remember this student saying under his breath as he walked out, you, you smell musty. And that was kind of the story of the year. And then, there, <laughs> and then there were, you know, like there were a few horrific things that happened too between me and students um and it was really jarring and um 
and, and difficult. And I would go home and work all afternoon and evening trying to figure out what I was doing and trying to plan lessons and all that stuff. Um, and then work, you know, through the weekends. Um, and, um, so basically I felt terrible, um, all the time. My, my brother was a Marine, um, and they had this, he did his boot camp training at Paris Island and they had this saying there that boot camp is like the worst day of your life, 90 days in a row. And, um, I, I like to say about that year that it was the worst day of my life, 200 days in a row. Um, so, you know, at that point I was, I was in it by the second half of the first year, things started getting a little bit better. Um, and, um, the story behind that was I, I did have a lot of support from people in this program, the Mississippi teacher Corps. uh, you know, a lot of wonderful people supporting me. And I also started watching, um, this TV show called the dog whisperer with this, um, man, Caesar Milan, um, who's the host of the show and he's the dog whisperer. So he, he had this whole sort of philosophy of, um, of dog training, of course, but also of like energetics. And, um, one thing that he said frequently in the shows I watched was he was recommending to dog owners to cultivate this energy that he called calm and assertive. And the idea behind that was, was that was the energy of, a, of like a pack leader, like a, a pack of, of wolves, d- dogs. Um, and that that energy um, basically, you know, inspired and organized the rest of the pack, um, you know, to fall into line. Um, and uh, I took his lessons and, you know, I never, not that I ever thought of any of the students there um, as being equivalent to or anything like dogs. Um, but I, I still took his lessons and tried cultivating that energy. Um, and it really started to work. I started to be able to get a handle on like the classroom and begin to manage it um, so that, you know, it wasn't it, uh, chaos and that we could start making some progress according to the standards of the uh, state of Mississippi's education department. Um, by the second year, we had a brand new building, um, federal government paid for, and I had air conditioning, uh, and I had this, this new energy and it was much improved from the very beginning. Uh, and in fact, right from the beginning, my classroom was really tranquil. Um, and uh, students were very busy in my classroom, you know, doing what I, I wanted them to do. Um, there were still problems, um, certainly between the students and myself. One of the things, you know, that I really hated the most was that just the situation that we were in um, made it so that there were some children that I grew to hate and I don't use that word lightly and wow and I'm ashamed you know I I am ashamed of of having had that experience and um it was my problem you know I don't put it on the students it was my problem uh to deal with um but I do feel that the situation we were in um made it 
difficult, you know, for me to deal with that and to, to avoid that. So there were still some difficult times um, for me. And then another difficulty for me was that there was very little recourse for me if a student was disrupting my class and, um, you know, persistently and defiantly. Because if I sent the student to the principal's office, they were going to be whipped. And I'm sorry, they were going to be... They were going to be beaten on their bottom with a stick. Literally? Yes. There was still corporal punishment. Yeah, they're still they're doing it today. Oh my gosh! Um, in in many states in the South, um, and so um, that was, you know, it, I still occasionally did send students to the principal's office if there was if I felt like there was nothing else that no other option available to me, um, but I really tried not to, and I I rarely did, and then it also if I called home, I got a similar kind of response. You know, I, most often if I called home to talk to a parent and said, you know, your, your child is disrupting my class, they would say, they would either say, well, why don't you whip them? Or they'd say, you know, thanks for calling me, Mr. Joya. As soon as so-and-so gets home, I'm going to give a, give them a beating they won't forget or something like that. So, um, so for me, you know, it was a bit of culture shock. Um, and I didn't want to participate in those um, in those things coming from coming from the north, coming from you know middle class society in the northeastern United States, um, with with very different values around like, discipline. Um, I I couldn't participate in that, so I, I had I didn't have a lot of recourse. Um, however, on the whole, things went fine in my classroom. My students, you know, their test scores improved. They were meeting standards. They were improving um, their performance according to these these sort of bizarre standards we were using to teach reading. Um, and in the the general tranquility of the second year, these I I had more time in the classroom um, to feel you know, just to get used to how it felt, this kind of what the administration considered success and these sort of uh, deeper problems, um, systemic problems began to reveal themselves to me, things that I had never thought of before. Um, And um, so I, I started to, you know, I started to wonder just about the system of education, where it, it came from, and, um, you know, what, el- what alternatives people had thought of, because, you know, I knew obviously there are people have must have thought of other ways of, of doing this and organizing this. Um, and so, you know, I started looking around on the internet. I think immediately I found John Taylor Gatto, who, whose essays, you know, I think the first thing I read was his, his very famous essay well, in, in some circles called, I think it's called the seven lessons school teacher. Yeah, that's right. Um, which, um, I think I had to lie down for like three days after I read. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 um, from, and from there I got very quickly to, um, to Sudbury Valley school. I, I think the, actually the librarian at the middle school, might have pointed me in that direction, but within like a week, wow. of starting to look into 
alternatives, you know, I sort of skipped over progressive schools and Montessori, Waldorf kind of stuff and right into more self-directed education and, and Sudbury, really, um, literature. And I, I got my hands on a couple of his, of Danny Greenberg's books, uh, which were available as eBooks, and um, and I decided that's you know that would be what I would what I was going to do next. So you and I have similar stories in this regard. I also came into this world through a John Taylor Gatto book, and that led me fairly quickly to the Sudbury Valley School literature, and picking up. I think it was the Sudbury Valley School Experience, that book uh-huh. by Daniel Greenberg and, and Mimsy Sanofsky. Uh, and then Free at Last. Uh, those two books were monumental in my life. And and Gatto has such powerful language, but also he casts a very wide net. His arguments are sometimes tinted with with politics or with like this kind of rabbit hole of history. Mm-hmm. And and it's not that specific. And then you find the Sudbury Valley School, and it's like, wow, this place is is doing it. And they've been doing it for a long time. And look at the photos of that beautiful building and that campus, 10 <laughs> acres of, of pristine New England lawns adjacent to a nature preserve, and, and these beautiful stories of, of kids and staff getting along harmoniously, learning, living, uh, and all written in very straightforward, clear, accessible language. I found it very compelling. Right. Agreed. Um, so was it Sudbury? And then, uh, I'm sorry, did you discover Sudbury and then essentially think I need to somehow work for a Sudbury school or work for the Sudbury Valley School? Was it a direct line? Yes, it was. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> Please con- continue your story. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of how I operate in general. I'm sort of intuitive and impressionistic and... Um, I have often, you know, when I've found things known right away that that's what I wanted um, or felt at home. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's so this, I mean, the story from there is I, I went in Sudbury Valley School. I grew up, I grew up nearby. Um, so we let, we went from Mississippi to, um, to my home in the Boston metro area to my home where I'd grown up. And, um, I did apply, I did send an application to Sudbury Valley School, um, did not get very far into their staff hiring process. Um, so I you know, started looking around for other Sudbury schools. And this, this one, Hudson Valley Sudbury School, was, was one in an area that I knew and liked, and it was a, a well-established school. So I applied here, and it, you know, it worked out, obviously. Can you tell listeners the basic background and maybe the demographics of uh, Hudson Valley Sudbury School? Like how many students go there? Where do they typically come from? Ages? Just to paint a a brief picture. Sure. This is the school's 16th year. um, And um, it's located in between Kingston and Woodstock in the mid-Hudson Valley, about 90 miles north of New York City. The um, student body for the last five years um, has been between 75 and 85, sometimes as, as high as 90 students. Um, and they come from they come from all around you know the area. It's definitely you know it's very much a commuter school. It's not a, it's not a neighborhood school. We're located on 70 acres of woods and there are 
several towns within 10 or 15 miles that the school draws from. And then there's also always, you know, a few that are doing very long commutes um, to the school. Uh, there's ages 5 through 18. Uh, it's usually the bulk of the student body is in the, um, the latter half of that age range, like 10 to 17. Um, that's, so, so that's pretty typical. Okay. The reason I asked is because there's lots of different schools which might you know, use the word Sudbury to describe themselves. And some of them are, are really small and and I think that there's a big disconnect between what's written about the original Sudbury Valley School with its enrollment of roughly 140. I know it goes up and down, but I think that's around the max. And the particular resources and the particular uh, physical environment of that school. And, right. and I think that Hudson Valley Sudbury School offers a pretty fair comparison to the original Sudbury Valley School because you do have some acreage. You do have a fairly high enrollment uh, you have a very nice building there, which I, I believe was was at least partially funded by a, a grant from from a family. It was it was funded by one of the founders of the school. Okay, um, but you're not operating out of a church basement. That's right. what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. So I think that you know if we're going to ask how far can the ideals of the original Sudbury Valley School. Um, extend to other schools that want to replicate it. I think Hudson Valley is a pretty good experiment to point at. Uh, so uh, before we started recording, you and I talked about five different broad ideals of, of Sudbury type schools. And I want, I want to know, Matt, uh, where your thinking began on each of these ideals and then, after years of experience being a staff member at a school, um, what the reality is like. And, and maybe the ide- ideal and the reality really matches up. Maybe they're really divergent. Uh, th- that's our aim here. So okay. the first one is probably the biggest one, and that's uh, governance and also justice. So I, I guess this is the democratic part of it. And it's also the, uh, the JC, the Judicial Committee part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, like, what did you expect walking into this world based upon your reading and how is that matched up with what you've actually seen and experienced? Yeah, it's a little bit tricky for me at this point with, with a couple of these, I think it will be tricky for me to remember my expectations um, around the governance, especially I, I'm not sure. I, I know it because partly because it wasn't, um, what really got me excited about the school, mm-hmm. you know, like I was, I was drawn to the school partly as an extreme response to the experience I described in Mississippi. Um, and I also, you know, felt very deep agreement with the idea that compulsion, um, coercion really had no place, uh, or a very, very small place in education. Um, and I was also drawn to it because it, the idea of the school really excited, really excited me as, you know, like the the child, my my inner child, like the yeah, like I would have, I would have loved this school. I was so my own ed- education was so disrupted by my schooling. I was really curious and like really intent on learning 
particular things that I was excited about and that were lighting me up and that school was always getting in my way and also stressing me out and making me feel like a loser because I was not complying. Um, so that was what really drew, drew me there. I don't know that I was thinking too much about the governance. I, I do think that I, um, partly from maybe reading the, the literature and um, just from, you know, have fantasizing, I was expecting um, a really empowered student body that was that was interested in running in running the school um and i expected this judicial committee system um to be um a much uh fairer and um way of of dealing with problems and i expected it to have much more you know social capital within the school community than um you know, deans of discipline do at conventional schools. And then, you know, it ebbs really the, the, in reality. So to getting to the, the second part, the reality is that at our school, participation in the governance of the school, it has ebbed and flowed in my, you know, seven years here. But, um, you know, sometimes very few people are, are participating and that it's really it's the staff sitting there in the school meeting making decisions um, except there's always a lot of people there's always been a lot of people will show up when there's something really juicy um, Ooh, what's a recent example of something juicy oh um, so okay a recent example would be so we have a school store that sells little sundry items and we have had an ongoing debate for years about what the school store should sell okay because when i when i first arrived there were things like kit kat bars and coca-colas being sold there and there was this discussion over years that that was irresponsible because of the sugar content of those items and other other you know, perhaps other ingredients which were are included in those and similar food items. Um, we had decided a couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly when, the way we had addressed it finally in kind of a, a sort of a compromise was to create a list of banned ingredients. And that had been in place for the last couple of years. The There, there wasn't candy, you know, per se and soda being sold in the store they're, the items were more like, I would call them healthy-ish sort of snacks. Um, and recently this year, we have, we have a new staff member um, and who has, is in the position of running the school store. And um, she, along with a couple of students, um, wanted to really roll back this um, list of, of banned ingredients and so something like that, that drew more, you know, that drew a crowd. Um, and um, they were successful um, in a very close vote. Um, but, you know, they that list was adjusted and, and it was rolled back somewhat. Um, other, like, things that will draw a crowd that are, you know, juicier tend to be, like, um, if there are... Um, 
if there's any motion, any time there's a motion made to regulate the use of devices or screens, mm-hmm. you know, that's when the pitch, the uh, the uh, pitchforks and torches come out, <laughs> and the, the the hall is full. The hall is full. Yeah. Standing standing room only. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. So m- maybe the ideal that that uh, someone like I naively uh, conceived of after reading the Sudbury Valley School books was this full participation or, or nearly full participation in most of the school meetings and in, and in the other democratic processes. But it yeah. sounds like the reality is when there's something that really directly affects someone, like if I can buy a Twix bar or not, or if I'm allowed to use my iPad in this room without headphones or not, uh, then that's when really the, the critical mass shows up. But otherwise, you do you ever fail to meet quorum? Do you ever fail to like get enough people to show up to actually make decisions? We well, we don't have a quorum. The school meeting doesn't have a quorum. Oh, okay. Um, and you know, one thing I would what what you just said I think is accurate for our school. Um, but I would add that there is also in my you know the time I've been here almost always um, been a group of people who go no matter what, like 10 to 20 students who, who are part of the sort of community of practice that is, you know, in running the school meeting. Okay. So, That's significant. That's about one quarter of yeah. the, the population. So there is, you know, it's, it's almost comparable to like what, like the voting public in the, in the United huh. States. That's interesting. Uh, what about the judicial committee and just justice being meted out fairly in general? So I, that also, you know, it, it has, it does ebb and flow. It does depend quite a bit on the individuals who are serving on the committee. Um, I think that it is superior, a superior system to what I have, you know, what happens in conventional school. You know, it has some, it definitely has some strengths. Every, it's very, um, I think liberating for a lot of people to have such good access to um, the judicial committee, um, to be able to bring anything there and have it dealt with very promptly. Um, that said, we don't, while it solves some of the problems um, that conventional schools have with discipline, you know, we have our own set of problems and there is, you know, there are always complaints about the JC and how it's operating and the decisions it's making. So um, we've made some changes to it to try to um, make it our own a little bit, um, which I think, you know, has worked to some, to some degree. Um, But like the ideal is really that um, there is not, you know, we, we, our ideal is to remove moral judgment from it um, to remove to the extent possible, you know, shaming from those kinds of that process, um, and to, um, you know, ideally to remove. Um, I guess I'd leave it at that shaming um, out of it, mm-hmm. and and that is very hard to do, um, mm. and um, you know, the success on that is is varied. Um, we don't, we were, have worked really hard to make it our system um, to avoid it being punitive. But 
you know, I've come to to believe that the mere fact of being called before a body, whatever its intentions, whatever its procedure, and however, whatever kind of language it uses and communication techniques it employs, the mere act of being called before it is for many people um, triggering and is punitive. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, something to consider, especially people um, who are used to punitive systems um, mm-hmm. um, with those expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, Even if you're being called in front of uh, a judicial committee made up of peers, made you know, there's a five-year-old on it, uh, it can still feel like being called to the principal's office. Exactly. And there's still, there's still, there's always, even though we have, you know, when we use legal jargon, so we call our rules laws, even though we have these school laws um, that are regulated by the school meeting, by the community together, um, there are still, there are still lots of disagreements in JC about whether um, something really is a problem or not. Um, and that's where I see most of the um, the tricky stuff and the bad energy, which can sometimes come out of JC, comes from those times when there's a disagreement about whether whatever occurred is actually a problem, um, actually causes any harm or not. Um, and those conversations are always being being held in there. And you know, a lot of a lot of the times when people go in there. Like I'll give you, I'll give you an example, not a real one, but <clears throat> something that happens commonly is like friends who are who are joking around with each other and maybe calling each other some nasty names, but consensually, um, you know, very common behavior. And like I, I do that with my friends and my brothers and whatever, um, make fun of each other, tease each other, that kind of stuff. Sometimes. Um, it's hard to tell, uh, it's hard to know where the line is between that and, um, something that our laws prohibit and something that we don't want in our community. So, so it's somewhat common occurrence for somebody to hear that. And it's between, you know, consenting parties saying like, whatever it is, some nasty thing to each other, someone else to write a complaint about that, to bring those people into the JC and their defense is, you know, this is consensual. We want to communicate like this. And the JC might take the position it's, you know, our law still prohibits this and we don't want it in our community. Um, those, that's an example of the kind of problem which um, I don't feel like we have solved. Um, and that I don't know that it is. It's something that you negotiate and navigate um, continually. I don't know that there is any kind of final solution mm-hmm. to it. Um, but it's, I, I, it's this, the kind of thing that certainly looks messy and, and falls short of an ideal. Well, it sounds like the justice system is, is pretty successful. And especially compared to all available alternatives for people, for young people and, and other school systems. I mean, just this level of nuanced discussion just doesn't happen in very many places. Uh, and level of involvement with with the young people being affected. So um, it sounds like a success to me. It sounds like it's it comes as close to the ideal as as one could feasibly ask. I think I think that it is. I mean, another and another since we're since we're framing the conversation this way, another thing that I would add 
um, where I feel like the governance in the JC is is less than ideal insofar as it might be unfair um, is that it really favors people who who have the ability to articulate themselves um, and the courage to do so publicly. Um, there's there's no well, public defenders or, in or the Sudbury legal uh, ecosystem. Yeah, well, everyone has to represent themselves. No, we do. We do. That's we do have mechanisms for defense, but they're somehow they often just fall short and they're insufficient. And it's still, um, so you can you can have an advocate in a trial, but you need to plead not guilty to have a to have a, a trial. So in the JC process itself, it's true there are there are not advocates. Um, it's not really. Um, plausible for us, our school to do that. It just um, for a variety of reasons, but but yeah. So in the JC itself, you're right. Um, if you do plead not guilty to breaking a law, then you know at your trial, you you can have somebody to defend you. Well, uh, let's move on, yeah. Matthew. We could spend our whole episode just talking about yeah. governance and justice. Um, let's move on to motivation. And uh, maybe I should just frame this in, in the ideals that Blake had when he read the Sudbury Valley School book. Yep. Um, so I think there's a lot of, of stories that came out of the Sudbury Valley School literature that are similar to stories you hear in the unschooling world. And they revolve around the idea of intrinsic motivation and, and the idea that pretty soon, not immediately, but pretty soon, a kid in one of these environments is going to develop a pretty strong sense of, of intrinsic motivation, self-knowledge. They'll develop some sort of passion for something. Although, if I remember correctly, the SVS books were pretty good about saying kids will come here and do nothing for a long time. They might just play for a long, long time before they develop anything that looks like an actual passion. But I, I right. think the implicit promise is still there that eventually they will find something that they're totally intrinsically motivated to do. Uh, does that sound right to you? Uh, it it definitely sounds right. I don't know, and it's been a long time since I've actually read the the books we were referring to earlier. But I think that I think that it's fair to say that that Sudbury um, proponents of Sudbury do promote that idea. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and just on that note, uh, I, I guess I don't want to just lean on the books in their original form, but also the Sudbury ideals as communicated by people who run Sudbury model schools, right. you know, the kind of the, the common talking points. Right. Uh, and so w with regard to those and motivation, how does the reality line up with the ideals at Hudson Valley? So, yeah, I recall, I mean, having the same, you know, expectation that you had or that you got, um, when you were first reading the literature too. And, um, and like I said, also for me personally, I know that if I had gone to a school like this, I know what I would have been would have been doing because I had really, I had interests as a kid, and I really wanted to to pursue them, and that was just um, you know just part of part of my story. When I when I arrived here, um, what I saw was kids hanging out and fooling around that's that was my interpretation at the time i mean I, I it still is and um you know kind of messing around and sometimes you know 
doing some horseplay. And I was, at that time, I was kind of shocked and disappointed, to be honest. And I was like, you know, that's what I was bringing with me. And I thought, what the hell are these kids doing? They have such an amazing, amazing opportunity to create whatever kind of life they want and to do whatever they want and to learn whatever they want. And they're just sitting around chatting um, or like doing nothing, you know, just sitting on a couch complaining. Um, so that, you know, that was, uh, that was kind of the, a, a first impression I had. Um, but that year, um, you know, and part of the process of being hired here is you have to spend a lot of time because everyone has, has a vote on who they're going to hire. So you have to come, you have to meet everybody. And so it's, it's a very processy process. It's kind of arduous. Um, and so I had to, I was living somewhere else. I was living in, you know, in Boston. I had to travel here like five times and spend a couple days each time. And as, as I, I still wanted to work here because even if that's, you know, I, I, I was enthralled by this idea of extending respect to young people and to respecting their decisions about how to spend their time, even if I wouldn't make the same decision myself. And it was worth it to me, even if I had my judgments, um, you know, to be able to uh, extend that respect and to be in like a in like a real healthy relationship with young people. Um, so I still wanted to come. And also, as I spent more time here, I began to realize there, there was a lot of other things. There were a lot of other things happening. Um, people were actually learning a lot about themselves and each other and about how to get along. I remember, you know, one of the, well, the very first time I walked into the building, actually, this, um, a young, a young lady walked up, walked right up to me. There was nobody, you know, no adult in sight inside the doors, kind of no, I had no guidance on like where to go in this building. I just, I walked in it was a little strange, and this girl walked right up to me. She was about ten, and she shook my hand and she said something. You know, she said, "How you know? Hello, how can I help you?" Um, and I was very impressed by that, um, and especially, and I was a little bit, you know, taken aback. I found it a little disarming, especially having you know worked, just been working with ten-year-olds and eleven-year-olds, and where I had worked, there was this very clear, you know, barrier between us most of the time and a lot of them wouldn't want to wouldn't want to shake your hand or would you know would be afraid to and um or to look you in the eye um or to, to speak to you with confidence so that really caught my attention and then maybe you know on the second or third day i was here i remember talking to these these this pair of twins and they were about the same age 10 or 11 and we were sitting in one of the areas the main areas of the school and we were watching these other kids sort of horse around and they were using a lot of um, profanity and these two little little boys these twins engaged me in this conversation about like using profanity and they told me their story and they had been there since they were five and they had told me about how they when they were six by the time they were six they had like these the nastiest most foul mouths <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and they like knew all the curse words like all the like the dirtiest stuff 
and that they had um, learned over time. This is what they said to me, that they had learned over time um, how to use those words um, skillfully, and that part of that was that they didn't use them that much. Um, and they were kind of looking at these other kids like these rookies, you know, like with profanity. And that also really impressed me. So things like that started to, I think, open my eyes to the other, you know, side of, of what was going on um, at the school. Um, and then just, you know, conversations with people. And, uh, you know, I realized that when people are sitting around doing nothing, well, often they're thinking and they're reflecting. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the young people I met here that year had really interesting um, things to say and thoughts about, you know, who they were and what they, they wanted to do. So um, I definitely got, got pulled in and um, started to learn myself, you know, just how to, to think about how to think about it differently. Mm-hmm. One other aspect of motivation I'd like to touch on yeah. uh, came from my favorite essay uh, ever published by the Sudbury Valley School, uh, written by Daniel Greenberg. Daniel Greenberg. The title is Free no, I'm sorry. It's from the book Free at Last. The title is And Arithmetic. And wow. it's this this wonderful vignette of a multi-age group of kids who decide they want to learn math. They want to learn kind of all math up through sixth grade, I think. And none of them had any math background. And they go and convince Daniel Greenberg to teach them math. He chooses the this math primer, this boring old dusty textbook, I think from 1898, and says, we're just going to do problem sets over and over again. You got to show up every day, but I'll teach you if you meet my conditions. And they all agree to it. And they just rapidly cruise through math. And they learn all of this math with incredible time efficiency compared to how long they would have had to spend sitting in a classroom. And that that story right there, along with similar stories I heard from the unschooling world, uh, gave me this idea that Within a Sudbury school, uh, kids are kind of waiting for the moment. And I would like say that with a capital M, the moment that they discover uh, a real need to learn something, or in this case, just a real desire to learn something, some sort of real motivation. And then they learn stuff very rapidly. And, and that's how intrinsic motivation within these environments works. There's a lot of doing nothing punctuated by moments of intense learning. So, So that's the ideal that that I had. Did you have that ideal also? And, and do you see this or something like it happening at Hudson Valley? I totally had that ideal. And I'm sure I, I remember reading that also. Um, it is a really good one. And although I, I have the, uh, the counterpoint story for you, Blake, um, we have, so there's a group at our school called the Source Cooperative, which I, which I'm a part of and have always been a part of that it, um, its purpose is to, connect students with resources, whatever that may be. Um, so one request that we get often is from students is, I want to learn math in particular. So, and we can get into to why that is later if you want to. Um, but so one thing that we do there, and often they're looking for some support, often they want what they, or what they think they want, is a tutor, like somebody to work with them on it. Um, but, but the first thing we do when we get a request like that is something like some variation of, 
you know, we'll hand them the multiplication table and say, okay, learn this and come back in a week or two weeks. And if you know the whole thing, we'll set up some, some tutoring for you. And I don't think anybody's come back and known it. Okay. So that's kind of, <laughs> okay. That's the counterpoint story. But so I have more to say about that, but we also have a similar story to Danny Greenberg's. And at this point it was three years ago, this group of, this group of boys um, also decided, they decided they wanted to go to high school, to a traditional a conventional high school, their local public high school. Um, they had been here for like seven years and they wanted to play basketball and they wanted like a bigger dating pool. Okay. So they were going to go to high school um, and um, they decided they needed to prepare and they needed to know some math and they had never done any academics at all. And they went through the year, they had somebody helping, um, helping them. So it was a little bit different than Danny's story, meeting with them three times a week. At the end of the year, they all took this state test that we call it the, Re- the regents exam here in New York, and they all got very good scores on it. Um, so I do see that happening. I also see some the in, the intrinsic motivation getting um, confused um, by um, or kind of muddled with extrinsic motivation. That's kind of um, what I'm seeing happening with the earlier examples of. Um, you know, like our students are not by any means exempt from like the shaming and the anxiety um, and the feelings of like unworthiness that are, you know, somewhat endemic to conventionally schooled students. Like they often start feeling very concerned um, and having a lot of self doubt that they are behind and I'm you know saying that in, in scare quotes um, their peers in conventional schools and so you know sometimes that motivates students to learn a lot despite the fact that they have no um, curiosity to but also it often inspires students to make you know half-hearted attempts hmm so half-hearted that they won't even go and just remember some times tables. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Um, gosh, let's, let's press on Matthew. Okay. Um, I'm going to combine two of the points. Uh, one is about respect between adults and young people at a mm-hmm. separate school. And also the idea of non-intervention by adults, which mm-hmm. is pretty unique to Sudbury, as I understand it. Um, there's, it, within the culture, there is a, a big hesitancy for adults to offer too much, to create too much structure, even if it's all optional, consensual. Uh, mm-hmm. so can you speak about that? Yes. So, sorry, which the, the which one? The respect. Well, between... start with the easy one. The respect. Like, it, yeah, Sudbury schools seem like a place where there's a really nice, respectful, uh, almost equal relationship between young people and and staff. Yes. Yes, that is, that is, you know, this is the easiest one because I have found, and to me it's the most important one, to be honest, and um, the ideal um, matches the reality very much at our school, and I think it's the most wonderful thing about our school, and it's what I, 
you know, it's what I value the most about it and like the most about it and enjoy about my job is um, having these relationships with young people that are not, uh, you know, that are not poisoned by having an extreme power imbalance um, and also having, you know, different objectives and working across purposes. But here, um, you know, we're not responsible for the behavior of the young people. We're not responsible for their academic outcomes. And that opens up this space to have, um, you know, these genuine relationships based on, on trust and mutual regard. And it's, it's really a wonderful thing that I don't, I don't think it can be overstated. Mm, Wonderful. Okay. So non-intervention. So non-intervention, this is a really interesting one, um, and I could make, I could get myself in a little bit of trouble with it, um, but not really because I don't, I don't think anybody um, will come will come for me. But I do like it's come up a bunch at our at our school over the years, and um, I think you'd get a different answer from each staff member here. Um, we, I. I'd say in general, um, or I'll speak mostly for myself, my own approach to this is I take more of what I think of as like an organic, natural approach. So um, I do, you know, I initiate activities at the school. I plan things at the school. um, And so there might be people in the Sudbury community who would say I am intervening um, and maybe breaking from Sudbury orthodoxy in that way. Um, sometimes we've made the distinction in the past, you know, in discussions in school meeting or such, that what counts, what matters the most is the motivation. And if there's what we don't want is kind of a patronizing approach to offering, making offerings. Um, and But otherwise, um, it's okay. Um, that's one line that's been drawn um, but um, I personally don't have any issue, and I don't even I don't even think that it uh, um, excuse me contradicts our philosophy at all to to make offerings. Um, and um, to be honest, to be totally honest, if I had my if I had my druthers, I you know my I think that my ideal school would be something like you know something that combined the best elements of the Sudbury model with something like a liberated learner center. Um, I don't see that as undermining respect for young people in any way. Um, as long as, as long as they are able to self-direct and they're able to, you know, as long as it's optional, um, I, mm-hmm. I don't have an issue with it at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, and, you do depart from the, the orthodoxy a bit there. Yeah. And then I also like, I also am acting in my own, you know, just I'm I'm acting in my own self-interest there. Like I organize things that I want to do. And um, so, you know, so I get to do stuff. I get to have fun, you know, while while I'm at work. And um, that's part of my own motivation too. Um, And, but people like it, you know, people want, you know, the students here say that they like that and they want to be engaged. They want to be offered stuff. Um, so to me, it seems like I'm almost a little bit suspicious of the idea of withholding. Mm-hmm. You know, when people are saying that they like that um, and that they want it. I'm suspicious of any idea about withholding in order to challenge young people. 
um, which is an idea to me that that's reminiscent of something uh, of the of the philosophy and practices of conventional schooling of adults kind of cooking something up in order to challenge and uh, stimulate growth in young people, which is hmm. which is not. Hmm. I, I don't think that's what we're about. I think I share your biases on this subject, and it makes me think of my work at Not Back to School Camp. And everyone is allowed to offer workshops at Not Back to School Camp. As a staff member, you're supposed to offer about three uh, hour-long workshops in a, a week-long camp session. Uh-huh. And, and only staff are allowed to, uh, maybe not technically, but typically only staff organize week-long projects, which are about nine total hours of contact time. And I have used workshops and projects as an opportunity to go deep into stuff that I think is interesting. I've I led a project on Argentine tango. I led one on acro yoga. I've led workshops on, on just things I want to have discussions about. And to me, that feels totally organic, to borrow your term, because the campers there get to experience something that I am genuinely passionate about. And, and usually I don't repeat workshops. I'm passionate about something in 2017 and passionate about something else in 2018. And, yeah. and that's, and not, you know, a lot of people show up to these, maybe a handful for each. Uh, and that's the same with the camper workshops. And so we're, I think staff and campers are pretty equal in the sense that, that not many people care about workshops in general at not back to school camp. And it doesn't feel like there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, heavy handedness or adults somehow exercising their power in, in an, an untenable way. Uh, so I, I agree with you and, and my experience speaks to your experience. Yeah. And that the same would hold true in terms of the attendance at, um, you know, things at our school. Um, um, uh, it's generally only a few people w- would attend um, anything that's going on anyway at our school, unless it's, you know, what a field trip to a water park, say, or something like that. Um, but the, the culture, um, of independence, um, and the right to choose and consent is so strong, um, in our culture, um, that, that it's, it really, it really is not an issue. Like I said, you would, you'll, you'll get different responses from different people, um, at our at our school, even and certainly within the, the Sudbury community. All right, last ideal. Yeah, uh, this is one that uh, I read a lot uh, about in the original SVS books, and that was we are preparing kids for life in a functional democracy uh, through these uh, these democratic processes, through this judicial system, which is modeled on the U.S. court system. Uh, we are preparing you to be an active participant in a in a democratic republic. What about that? Is that an ideal that is even talked about very much at the Hudson Valley Sudbury School? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. I appreciate the follow up question because I'm sort of was I'm racking my brain a little bit. I guess we don't we don't talk about it too much. Um, and I, I find there to be, I find there to be some truth to it in so far as, um, I think that, you know, even if, even when rates of participation are low at our school, everybody is aware that they have access. Everybody knows that. 
Um, everybody knows how they could go about getting that access. Um, and everybody knows that, um, that they have a voice. So I do think that students here um, become used to that. And the ones who participate do become used to some of the mechanisms and processes by which they, they might use their voice, which are, um, you know, they are somewhat similar um, to the, the more sophisticated processes that um, are used by, you know, their, their city governments and state and federal government. Um, so um, I think there is some truth to it. Um, there's, in another sense, I feel like this is, what we have here is a functioning democracy and, you know, there are, there are not many functioning democracies uh, in our in our municipal and state and, and federal government. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm kind of losing my train for thought. Oh, that, that's thought okay. That. I'll, I'll fill yeah. in a, a blank here. Yeah. To the best of my understanding, yeah, the Sudbury model mimics the New England town hall style meeting used among small communities, like right. I, probably starting in the colonial era but definitely through the 1800s right. and and the kind of meetings that perhaps go on today. I don't spend much time in rural New England myself, but I imagine that throughout the 20th century, the utility of those meetings declined as there was more of a focus towards national politics. Right. And so that's, that's what leads me to be a bit skeptical about this ideal because I don't know how applicable it is to the day-to-day -day life that the graduate of a Sudbury school is going to experience right i mean i think it might be i think it might be applicable and i think that there are Sudbury students and graduates the ones who do get really into the the processes and have a passion for it and that you know it's like anything else not everyone's gonna have a passion for governance but um the ones who do i think that they are prepared um and i agree i don't Part of my hesitancy and my difficulty in answering your question, Blake, is that I don't really know what it means to be an engaged citizen. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure. Like I feel like the only thing on offer to me as a citizen is like my ability to vote, which um, or not vote. Um, but on a local level, there are opportunities um, to you do have more of a voice and more access to governance. Um, usually, I think on a local level. And our students um, who have a passion for it and get a lot of experience at the school, I think they are more prepared to be involved in, say, their their local um, their local politics. Um, mm -hmm. And even though, yeah, the, the town hall meeting has mostly, you know, has mostly disappeared, um, you know, here in Kingston, and I'm sure it's similar in a lot of a lot of American cities. Um, there are lots of opportunities um, to to be involved in various committees and in different ways. Um, so I think I do think it's fair to say that um, it at least that Sudbury schools at least provide an opportunity um, to learn quite a bit about um, about how democracies work and the skills for getting things done in democracies. Which you know, obviously, that's not easy to do and it takes a lot of a lot of different skills um to make things happen in democracies so um yeah, yeah. And, and from my awareness of 
what the graduates of Sudbury schools, I'm specifically thinking of the Sudbury Valley School and the Circle School, because yeah. those are the only two who have like rigorously tracked their graduates. Right. Um, uh, it doesn't seem like there's some prevalence of those those people going into politics or or other you know elected positions. That's true. Uh, yeah, but I, I really take your point. Uh, that you made earlier about just knowing that you have a voice and just having been around these processes, even if you hardly directly interact with them for a sustained period of time. I, I imagine that when the moment comes when you do need to exercise your your democratic uh, rights or responsibilities, then uh, they will at least be incrementally more prepared to to respond to that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um... I, but yeah, we don't talk we don't talk about this too much here, and um, I you know for good reason. I, I think that um, the people who get the most out of that are the people who have a passion for it anyway. Yeah, yeah, just like high school students who do mock trial. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Last chance, Matthew. Are there any other ideals uh, that that felt? very real for you when you were walking into the Sudbury world and and now you want to comment on the realities anything that we've missed yeah I mean I guess for for me and something that I really prize a lot um, as an ideal for our, at our school is uh, is young people uh, having the opportunity here to really cultivate um, skills uh, which allow them to direct and, and create their own lives. Um, and so that's, a, you know, a variety of skills really, you know, really fundamentally, I think for, to that is skills of reflection um, and being able to, to ask themselves questions and, and, you know, work through to, um, to some kind of answer. And, um, that's something I really value about the school. Um, it's something that, you know, that is, is the main reason or one of the, one of the main reasons that I, you know, I send my own kid to the school and will send my other one too, is because it's so important to me. Um, uh, it's been so important to me learning and it's taken me longer. Um, than a lot of our, it takes a lot of our students to learn that, uh, that I am ultimately responsible for all aspects of my life um, and that nobody's going to build um, the life I want for me, that it's up to me to do it. And, um, you know, that, that is an ideal. And, I, you know, I'm not in touch with many of our graduates. There is a study being done right now on our, on our graduates. Um, I don't... I don't know how well that ideal matches the reality for for our graduates as they move, you know, into their twenties and thirties. Um, for um, our students here, you can see those gears turning, and you can see you can see those skills being cultivated um, over their time here. It takes a really long time. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a lifelong project. To, to really get that, um, to really get those lessons and get that together. It's something, there's not, I don't think there's a, a, an ending point to that journey, but you can, you can see it happening here um, just throughout 
uh, you know, a student's uh, career as a student here. Um, and um, so, yeah, to, to me, that's the most, that's, I feel maybe I've said this about another ideal, so maybe I shouldn't say it again, but that's one of the ones that for me I prize most highly is just this kind of process uh, of realization um, and learning um, that it's up to you. Matthew, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Blake. It was really fun talking to you.